Many of our food heroes remain unsung, perhaps with preference to the warm fires of the kitchen rather than the icy cold spotlight, but they deserve recognition for the contributions they make to their communities and to food culture overall. Today, we are celebrating the accomplishments of two great African-American food pioneers who not only cooked great food that nourished people, but who in turn created opportunities to elevate and improve the lives of others. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Where are you? I am doing well as well. I am actually trying to stay dry. We are up on top of a mountain in Montana, and we're expected to get four to six inches of snow tonight. That is just unbelievable to me. Talk about January, right? We're living it right now. Exactly. I'm really excited because in just a few short days, I am heading off to Bonnie Old England with my family for a couple of weeks. So I am going to take a lot of photos, be prepared when I come back for a As We Eat Journal article on what I ate in England. I am so excited to hear all about what you ate in England. Thank you. Welcome. In our last episode, we discussed our newest national holiday, Juneteenth, and how food plays an important role, and more specifically, the colors of the food in celebrating that holiday. To further this discussion, we felt that it was really important to present some of the most influential African American food pioneers. And this list is pretty long. It includes people like George Washington Carver, who promoted peanuts as a cash crop when bull weevils decimated the cotton crops of Alabama. Essentially, he saved the economy of the region. Or Booker T. Watley, one of the pioneers of sustainable agriculture. And we see his influence today in what we call CSA boxes. Or James Hemings, the first American trained as a French chef. Hemings introduced macaroni cheese, french fries, creme brulee, and ice cream to America. Thank you, James. We really appreciate your efforts here. (laughs) But the two pioneers that Kim and I really want to talk about today are Leah Chase and Edna Lewis. Kim, I am super, super excited to learn all about Leah Chase Tell me all about oh, her. Oh, man, I, this woman is just incredible. And you, you, we have been talking a lot this year about influential women, major movements in history like emancipation, powerful celebrations like Juneteenth. And it was clear that we really needed to highlight some of these amazing Black African-American chefs, food scholars, cookbook and food writers, food influencers, because they frankly don't always get the visibility afforded to others. And you don't know what you don't know. For example, I didn't know anything about Chef Leah Chase, who is a venerated chef emeritus of the famous Dookie Chase restaurant in New Orleans. 
actually until I watched the Bravo TV show Top Chef that filmed a season of the competition in New Orleans. And during that time, they brought Leah Chase onto the show and I was immediately enthralled and I've been obsessed pretty much ever since. I asked myself, like, why don't I know about her? And the immediate answer seemed simple enough. I haven't spent that much time in the American Southeast. And so Creole and Cajun foods and those food traditions were pretty unfamiliar to me. But when I really dig deeper into that question, I also have to admit that while I may be a novice about Creole food, really the first thing that comes to mind when I think about this region and the foods from it is, bam, Mm -hmm. and Chef Emerald Lagasse. Yep. And to be fair to Chef Lagasse, he makes great food and he makes really great television. And he certainly has popularized Creole and Cajun foods. I mean, to the point that Cajun seasonings became widely available in grocery stores across the country. But the man didn't invent the cuisine. That roux got started a long time ago, if you'll forgive the the food pun there. And Chef Leah Chase didn't invent the cuisine either. But she is the queen of Creole cuisine, and she absolutely certainly helped to develop, define, and elevate Creole food beyond just a food that was available in New Orleans. She really brought it to the forefront. So Leah Chase was born January 6, 1923. She moved to New Orleans with her family in 1940 because her original hometown did not have a Catholic school that she could attend as a Black student. So the family moved to New Orleans and she went to school at St. Mary's Academy. And then after graduation, rather than taking a factory job in town like the other women in her family did, she applied to work in a coffee shop in the French Quarter. This is effectively the very beginning of her culinary career. She met her future husband, Edgar Dukey Chase Jr., who is a jazz musician and he was the leader of the Dukey Chase Orchestra. And they met at a Mardi Gras ball in 1945 and were married in 1946. As far as I can tell, they spent their entire lives basically joined at the hip. So this story about Leah cannot be divided from her husband, Dookie. They both did incredible work to create the Dookie Chase restaurant. His parents had a corner stand that they actually were eventually able to grow into a small corner bar and restaurant in the Treme, where they sold homemade po' boy sandwiches and lottery tickets. But when Dookie Sr.'s health began to fail in the early 1950s, Dookie Jr. and Leah stepped in to help run the business, and Leah took charge of the kitchen. And in a later interview, she said, quote, when we got married, I said, we're going to change things. The Black community had no restaurants. We only had fried chicken, fried fish, and that kind of thing, end quote. So inspired by the restaurants that she knew in the French Quarter, Leah reinvented the whole Dookie Chase business by adding more Creole cuisine, including some of her own family recipes, and by adding artwork by African-American artists to the walls. Under their watch, Dookie Chase Restaurant evolved from a small place into a showplace for Creole cuisine and a venerated community hub for Black musicians, artists, and politicians. Word is because there were only a few banks that would allow checking accounts for black customers. Trusted friends instead cashed their paychecks at Dookie Chase's on Friday nights, and then they'd stick around for a drink and a po' boy sandwich. This made their reputation grow and expand throughout the New Orleans community. When President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the restaurant's upstairs dining room quickly became the spot in New Orleans where activists and organizers met to develop strategies for the civil rights movement. 
Jim Crow laws at the time forbade mixed-use mingling in restaurants. But the Chase family was so influential in the New Orleans community and the civil rights movement that city officials left the establishment alone because they feared massive community backlash if they interfered with the Dookie Chase restaurant. Leah recalls this from her own memories, quote, the freedom rides when those left from New Orleans to meet them in Birmingham and other places, they came here first. I fed them and they would really always have their meetings over a bowl of gumbo and some fried chicken. In some ways, we changed the course of America right here in this restaurant, end quote. Wow. Yeah, it's one thing to have hindsight into a major event like the civil rights movement. It's another to live through that all and and know that you're being a part of a massive change in a country that is affecting the lives of thousands, millions of people. And to recall that with such clarity and honesty is, I think, is just really cool. In addition to her chef dominion at the Dookie Chase restaurant, Leah is the author of three cookbooks. The Dookie Chase Cookbook, and Still I Cook, and Down Home Healthy Family Recipes of Black American Chefs. Links to all of these books are going to be in our show notes. She also worked as a visiting culinary professor at Nichols State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana, and one of her red chef coats is at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Now, she picked up a ton of accolades over her career, but two of the most notable ones are that food and wine magazine named Dookie Chase, one of the 40 most important restaurants of the past 40 years that was given to her in 2018. And Leo was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award from the James Beard Foundation in 2016. She was also a founding member of the Southern Foodways Alliance which is a great organization devoted to highlighting Southern food culture and heritage. After Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005, the Dookie Chase restaurant was covered with about five feet of water and had to be closed, as did so many other restaurants Mm. throughout the area. Dookie Chase in particular was actually closed for two full years for repairs. The Chases moved into a FEMA trailer across the street from the restaurant and worked slowly but steadily to rebuild the restaurant. Now, she's 82 at this point when Katrina happened. And you'd think that most 80-something-year-olds would retire after losing their life's work, but not Leah Chase. A benefit lunch that served 50 gallons of gumbo, zurb, fried chicken, and bread pudding raised $40,000 for Dookie Chase's repairs. And during that time... Chase not only redid her restaurant, but she also joined Women of the Storm, a coalition of women from neighborhoods across the city who went to Washington, D.C. to lobby Congress for additional funds to help restore New Orleans and other communities damaged by the hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Now, over the course of her 70-year career, this woman basically never stopped. Leah fed a cavalcade of politicians and celebrities, including President George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Hank Aaron, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Thurgood Marshall, and other Freedom Riders, Lena Horne, James Baldwin, and more. Ray Charles sang a song about going to Dookie Chase in his song, Early Morning Blues, and Leah is the inspiration for the character of Tiana in Disney's The Princess and the Frog. This last quote from Leah really kind of helps sum up why I admire her so much. She said, I quote, I don't care if you're the Pope or the president, you have to eat and I can cook for you. All I do is try to make people happy through food, end quote. 
Now, her husband, Dookie Chase, passed away in 2016, and Leah herself passed away June 1st, 2019. But although they're gone, they are very fondly remembered. John T. Edge, director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, had this to say about Leah and her legacy. Quote, In a moment when trends come and go, when restaurants come and go, when chefs come and go, she has proven the value of fidelity to place, to community, to purpose. Through her restaurant and her long service to the community, she proved that to invest deeply in one place by way of your restaurant is a higher calling in our world, end quote. And Jessica Harris, longtime friend and author of Beyond Gumbo, Creole fusion food from the Atlantic Rim, said this, quote, her influence extends beyond the mere culinary. She has been an extraordinary force for good and for change in New Orleans, she has captured the imagination of young African-American chefs around the country, thereby becoming not only an icon, but also a role model, end quote. And if I leave us with this one point, I think that it's this. Leah Chase proves how important and valuable it is to share food with others, especially your real food, the stuff that you ate as a kid, that crazy dish you learned to make in college, your partner's favorite meal, your kid's favorite meals, all of this is important and special. There's no food that is not good enough to share with somebody else. As Leah said, I just want to make you happy. So let's do that. To me, that's at least another side of what soul food is really all about. Making, serving, and eating food that just feeds the essence of who we are as people. Wow. That is so amazing. There's one thing that you said about the place and the time and the community that really reverberates in Edna Lewis's story as well. To introduce Edna Lewis, I wanted to quote Judith Jones' preface in Edna's cookbook, The Taste of Country Cooking. And Judith was an American writer and editor who worked for Knopf, a publishing company here in the States. She's credited with rescuing the diary of Anne Frank and mastering the art of French cooking. So now you know a little bit about Judith. <laughs> this is what she wrote. Quote, I was immediately struck by Edna's regal presence when she walked into my office. She was wearing one of the African-style outfits that she had made herself, a colorful, long, batik skirt and top with matching scarf draped loosely around her neck and dangling earrings that swung when she tossed her head back. Oh, can't you just see? What a great vision. Absolutely. Right? Yes. <laughs> so when Judith met Edna for the first time, it was kind of a favor for a chief executive at Random House, which is the parent company of Knopf. And he wanted her to meet with a socialite friend about a cookbook that she and the socialite's favorite caterer had penned. Now, the socialite was Evangeline Peterson, and the caterer was Edna. The cookbook was based on the dishes from Cafe Nicholson, a Manhattan restaurant where Edna served as the head chef, actually the only chef. But before we get into that story, I want to go back just a little bit. Edna grew up in a town called Freetown, and it was so named because it was founded by men and women who had been freed from chattel slavery and wanted to be known as free people. Her grandfather was one of the first residents. His house was in the center of town, and the others circled around it. And the house was huge. 
and it was filled with family, parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, cousins. And not only was there this connection to family, they were connected to the land that they worked, to the animals that they raised, to the people of the town. They would forage, grow, and consume food by seasons, and they would celebrate events as a community. Now, when she was 16, her father passed away and Edna decided to join the Great Migration, leaving Freetown and ultimately ending up in New York, where she worked first as a laundress. She got fired after three hours. (laughs) She, She apparently didn't know how to iron. And then she became a seamstress and she actually sewed dresses for some pretty influential people at the time. She was also domestic help. And eventually she opened Cafe Nicholson with John Nicholson, who was an antique dealer and purportedly a friend who Edna would invite to her extremely coveted dinner parties. Now, the menu at the restaurant was simple, and it reflected her Southern cuisine. So it was herbed roast chicken, fish, some cake, lemon chest pie, chocolate souffle. And the restaurant was a hit, especially with homesick Southerners like Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams. And there were also artists and socialites and celebrities like Gloria Vanderbilt and Marlene Dietrich. Now, back to Judith's office. The Edna Lewis and Evangeline Peterson cookbook called the Edna Lewis cookbook had already been sent. (laughs) Very original. (laughs) But it had already been sent to another publisher. So there really wasn't much that Judith could do. And in her own mind, Judith thought that the writing was actually characterless. But she was so struck by Edna's passion when Edna told stories about growing up in Freetown that Judith talked her into a second cookbook. And when it was published, this cookbook, in Edna's voice this time, demonstrated the deep roots of culture and cuisine in America. It revealed Southern cooking and culture as so much more than greens and grease and grits. It showed us how our food connects us to a place and a time and to each other. And I would go so far as to say that it inspired a new way to look at food writing, especially in cookbooks, and a new way to look at influences of cultures within America. This was a cookbook that had stories in it, that had a voice in it. It wasn't just recipes. It was how all of these recipes came to be. It was also broken down into seasons. And it was the first farm-to-table type of cookbook that we now see so frequently. So I'm reminded back in March when we talked about essays from Betty Crocker to Feminist Food Studies, A Critical Perspective, in the introduction, which we both loved, there was this great passage about cookbooks and the nature of cookbooks and how they can be classified as to obviously sometimes a cookbook is not much more than an instruction manual. Although I remember them talking very distinctly about reading books as literature mm. and Edna Lewis's book seems to be that have that quality to it where it is not just this is how to make this dish and it's devoid of context and you get no real sense of flavor of (laughs) no pun intended about what the dish is about and why it's important I mean why are we putting this recipe forward to read that her book could be read as literature as a cultural contextual icon and it's remained in print Ever since, I believe. Absolutely. Ever since its publication, because of that quality to it. 
Absolutely. And you are so right. There's one chapter about the hog when they killed the hogs. And it it's not graphic in any way. And it's not bloody or gory. It just really speaks to how important this animal was to the entire community and the reverence that they had to this animal. She talks about her father gives them the bladder of the pig and they blow it up with straws that they'd made out of reeds and they hung them <laughs> to dry and they would use them on the Christmas tree as these Christmas balloons. Oh, wow. That sense of all of these parts of this yeah. animal are so important and so celebrated. Yeah. And uh, she talks about the next day going and seeing the hogs hanging and that there was this beauty about that animal. And mm -hmm. I would have to think that the beauty was in the fact that one, that this was an animal that they were able to raise themselves and slaughter mm -hmm. themselves and feed themselves without any interference. And the whole book is filled with stories like that. And if our listeners Listeners, if you have not picked up this book and read it, I so recommend it. It's such a beautiful, beautiful piece of literature. Oh, so glad to have learned a little bit more about her today. Both these women, where would we be if they hadn't had the courage to bring that power out into the world? Right. And to have the courage, to have the vision, to have the love to bring forward all those skills, those abilities to others. To me, that's just a remarkable act of humanity and compassion. I'm struck over and over again by going back to Leah Chase. It's just this idea of, I don't care who you are. Let me feed you. And in that moment, we're going to be happy together. We mentioned earlier an episode about Juneteenth. It's episode 42, Red, Yellow, and Green, the Multicolored Food Traditions of Juneteenth, where Kim and I dive into the significance of the color of the celebratory foods to discuss how they bring hope, vision, and the power of community. And if you haven't listened to that, I highly suggest going back and listening to it. And if you have, listen to it again. The other episode that Kim mentioned was our women's suffrage episode, which was episode 37. And in that episode, we explore how community cookbooks help to aid the cause spanning seven decades to bridge the gaps in civil dialogue and good food. So those are two episodes that we really recommend that you listen to, and we hope you really enjoy them. We are rolling into July, which is hard to believe with four to six inches of snow on the horizon <laughs> no, for me. Crazy. And our next episode falls on the anniversary of a sitcom episode whose tasty message could potentially bring harmony to the world. Look to the cookie. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at As We Eat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We hope this one's one of your favorites as well. It would make us super happy if you would share this episode with a friend. It really helps us to grow. And if you would review or rate it on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And I know that Spotify now has a review function as well. So we would so appreciate five stars. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack 
We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, dish recovery explorations, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, including one especially for brands. We know you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires.